Hello, welcome to another week of Tour Guide Tell All. This is Candon, and today's podcast is not originally the topic I was supposed to talk about. I was originally going to talk about green book sites in Washington, D.C., and that will most definitely be a topic of a future episode. But a few weeks ago, I came across this post about people everyone should know about, but most people don't. Uh, and I love those hidden history types of posts. And they, they're they often usually someone I have heard about before because uh, I am a full-on history nerd. Or the story, I mean, it's interesting, but it's not mind-blowing enough for, for what I would consider something uh, everyone should know. But y'all, this one stopped me in my tracks. Oh my god, people should definitely know about Eugene Bullard. And why do we not? In the course of my research, I discovered that, you know, his story has been lost a lot in the United States, but he was more well-known during his life and still now uh, in Europe. So I asked a few people I know uh, who live abroad if they have ever heard of Eugene Bullard. Don't worry, I will cut all of our personal chat out. Uh, down to business. Have you ever heard of Eugene Bullard? We, oui, but I study military history, so I might have an advantage. Okay, this is a fair point. I probably shouldn't have asked a fellow <laughs> military history nerd. Hey, I won't keep you long because I know it's the middle of the night. Um, but quick question. I'm doing a podcast on this guy named Eugene Bullard, and I'm curious if you've ever heard of him. No, I don't recognize the name, but who is he? He was the first black American fighter pilot and had a lot of other things going on in his life that I can't say yet because uh, we haven't gotten to that point of the podcast. Oh, yeah, vaguely. So he fought in both wars, right? And then to get both sides of the oceans, I asked my husband who was sitting in the room next to me. I can see. Well, that's pretty cool. Hey, you want to be on my podcast? Before reading that Facebook post, had you ever heard of Eugene Bullard? No. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for that very long answer. So he was descended on his father's side um, from enslaved persons in Haiti who were brought over from the Caribbean to the continental U.S., with their, I mean, basically their human traffickers. Uh, and his mother was a full-blooded Creek Indian. So his parents were William Bullard and Yokely Thomas. Eugene was the seventh of ten children. Uh, he was lucky number seven. And they lived in this three-room house in Columbus, Georgia, on the Alabama border in the late 1800s. Now, his father, who was nicknamed Big Ox, uh, so he was born into slavery in Georgia, and uh, Bullard was actually the name of the white plantation owners where he was enslaved. Now, Eugene's story of his family and specifically his father's history was not entirely rooted in fact. Eugene believed that the Bullard family spoke French um, and had kind of like 
this this relationship to the country of France, and it didn't seem that there was any evidence of that. Uh, but as a young child, Big Ox, he kind of had he had this similar admiration to France, and he raised his children to believe that in France it didn't matter what your skin color was. After Eugene's mother died and he witnessed the near lynching of his father, he ran away at the age of 12. He found a group of English Romani, also known as gypsies. Here he learned to work with and to ride horses. When they decided to spend more time in the United States rather than returning home to England where Eugene thought they were going and was excited about because it was one step closer to his dream of living in France, Eugene left once more. He worked as a laborer, taking care of the horses. He worked at a sawmill, uh, really throughout Georgia, throughout his early teen years. In 1911, he was dressed in silks and seated atop a fine horse. Uh, he was working as a jockey for one of his bosses. He won the two featured races, earning himself more money than he had ever seen. And he really became a curiosity to the local Georgians who wanted to watch the, quote, black jockey. Eugene made his way north and south and back again throughout Georgia, running into trouble and finding help from strangers. He was an affable, handsome young man with really a kind spirit, but a great sense of pride. He would spend his earnings on a new suit only to have it ripped and torn in continued attacks for no other reason than being a black man in nice clothes. The American South seemed intent on tearing him down, but he always managed to find his way back. He eventually made his way to Hampton Roads, Virginia. He was standing on the pier looking out on the water, and someone mistook him for a longshoreman working on the boats. So he took that opportunity to just get on the ship. Uh, three hours later, the ship docked. Now, Eugene did not have more than a second-grade education, but he did have a feeling that it would take more than three hours to get to France. So he was only in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, but... Norfolk, Virginia is a seaport. He would end up stowing away on a German ship, the Martyrus. It was March 4, 1912, and he would not come back to the United States for nearly 30 years. He hid in one of the life rafts on the boat with a bit of food and water. Now, the crew kept talking about this place called Aberdeen, and he hoped that was in France. But after three days, his food ran out and he surrendered himself to the captain, convincing him to put him to work rather than throw him overboard. They docked in Aberdeen, Scotland. So he was not in France, but at least he was in Europe. And the crew of the Martyrus had really come to admire and respect him. They left him with a collection of goods and even a fair wage for the work that he did on the ship. He saved money he earned, uh... He, he worked as a lookout for illegal gambling in Glasgow. Uh, and then he worked as a longshoreman in Liverpool. And in Liverpool is the first time he began to work and then train at a boxing gym. He boxed under the name Sparrow, flitting about the ring, pecking at his opponents, and which, ironically, it was a nickname that he was called by one of the old women in Georgia and a nickname that would really come around again for him in the future. So Sparrow, he trained under Dixie Kid, a famous black American boxer who almost won the 1904 World Welterweight Championship. 
Uh, it was Dixie Kid who arranged for Bullard to fight in Paris. So he arrived, he won his fight in Paris, and he immediately left the boxing tour to settle in France. Finally, he has made it. Here was Bullard, a son of an enslaved man and a Creek Indian woman who escaped the racism of the American South, and he was in Paris with a pocket full of money. His dream was finally realized. Except, it was 1914. Just after World War I began, Bullard joined the 3rd Marching Division of the Foreign Legion. This was the only part of the French forces that foreign volunteers were allowed to serve in. He fought alongside men of all nationalities, religions, and backgrounds. Within a few months, he was a machine gunner at the front lines of the Somme. World War I was a time of trench warfare, and he mucked through mud, mixed with blood, past fallen French and British soldiers. By the end of 1915, he was serving in the 170th Infantry Regiment, nicknamed Les Hirondelles de la Mort, the Swallows of Death. In March of 1916, he was at the Battle of Verdun, the longest and one of the bloodiest battles of the war. He was on the front lines leading his machine gun crew. Shrapnel to the face did not stop his advance, but he would be seriously wounded by a near fatal wound to the thigh. For his actions at Verdun, he was awarded Le Croix de Guerre, one of the highest military honors in France. He could have left the front if he wanted, but he didn't. He wanted to fly. He received his pilot license, number 6950, in May of 1916. And with that, Eugene Bullard became the first black American fighter pilot in history. Back home, the only press he received was a few sentences in the NAACP newsletter. During his time learning to fly, he was bunkmates with James Norman Hall, who you may or may not know, uh, co-wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. He said of his time with Bullard the following. I'm going to read an excerpt from his diary uh, as soon as I can pull it up on my screen. There is a fine crew in the school, men from all colleges and men who don't know the name of a college. For instance, there are about half a dozen from Harvard, as many from Yale, some from Dartmouth, a few from Amherst, Williams, etc. We have a couple of ex-All-Americans, a Vanderbilt Cup racing driver, men sticky with money in the same barracks with others who worked their way over on ships. This democracy is a fine thing in the Army and makes better men of all hands. For instance, there is a corporal of our room is American, as black as the ace of spades, Bullard, but a mighty white fella at that. The next two bunks to his are occupied by Princeton men of old Southern families. They talk more like a darkie than he does and are best friends with him. This black brother has been in the Foreign Legion, wounded four times, covered with medals for his bravery in the trenches, and now he uses his experiences and knowledge of French for the benefit of our room. Result? The inspecting lieutenant said we had the best-looking room in the barracks. So I wanted to share this to kind of discuss the, the group of men that Bullard was in the, f the pilot squadron with. Uh, not necessarily am I a fan of uh, the wording and the way he does this. Um, but I guess there's, there's that. At this time, America was officially neutral, but many wealthy Americans wanted to help support the fight against Germany, and they helped fund a squadron of American pilots, but they flew under French command. If this sounds like a movie plot that you have heard before, um, I don't know about you, I love Flyboys. Uh, I don't think it met 
a lot of great uh, movie critics top ten or anything. But the the movie Flyboys was kind of based on this, um, and Bullard was c- covered, but not so much in that movie. Uh, so the Lafayette Escadrille, Eugene was one of just a few dozen members of this particular squadron, and they were commanded by an American named Dr. Gross. Eugene could not escape racism, even here. Dr. Gross did all he could do to prevent Eugene's advancement and opportunity. In 1917, France needed trained pilots more than it needed to listen to Dr. Gross. Um, And even though he wasn't recommended, Bullard would be sent to the front lines. He was stationed south of Verdun and is often credited, though it cannot actually be confirmed by French authorities, that he shot down one, maybe two German aircraft. But he did take part in over 20 combat missions. He had a good luck charm for these missions. A monkey. A monkey named Jimmy, uh, who carried in his flying tunic. Eugene did not recall exactly how he became master of the monkey, but involved a night of drinking while on leave in Paris and a card game. But Jimmy would be an ever-present companion on Eugene's missions. So Jimmy, his pet monkey, had a miniature flight suit. And let me tell you, I spent just as much time trying to find a photo of this as researching this entire story. But I could not find one. There is a photo of him, of Jimmy, not in the flight suit, though, uh, on our Instagram, at tourguidetellall. It's said that Eugene painted on the outside of the fuselage of his plane a red heart with a dagger through it. Above the heart was his personal slogan, and this would be one that he later used for the title of his unpublished memoir, Tout le sang qui coule est rouge. Roughly in English, all blood which runs is red. This is testament to his courage, but also kind of what he overcame despite the judgment of the color of his skin. Now, when Americans joined the war, they recruited those Americans serving with the French forces, uh, but the continued racism within the ranks really prevented Bullard from being accepted. The board of white American men couldn't deny his training or that he was in physical shape, so what they did was they ranked him as only, quote, sergeant material. And thus they used this loophole that required all American pilots to be rated at least as first lieutenants. But the French continued to honor him. He ended this part of his military career with a military medal, the Croix de Guerre, Volunteer Combat Cross, Medal for Military Wounded, which he got twice, World War I Medal, Victory Medal, Voluntary Enlistment Medal, Battle of Verdun Medal, Battle of Somme Medal, and the American Volunteer with the French Army Medal. So the Great War... It's ended. He is now back in Paris. The former boxer could no longer box with his war injuries, so he learned to play the drums, as you do. For four years, he was a drummer at a nightclub called Zelly's. So this was the jazz age of the 1920s. It was in full swing, uh, but in Montmartre, even the cabaret clubs closed at midnight. Uh, But with the help of a lawyer friend and his kind of his status as a war hero... Bullard secured a license that allowed Zellies to stay open later past midnight into the early hours, and it became one of the most celebrated nightclubs in Montmartre. Now, if you're not familiar with that area, it is where the Moulin Rouge is in Paris. 
He worked as a masseur. He continued to box a little bit. He made money hiring out musicians for private parties. He became a personal trainer. Uh, he even went to Alexandria, Egypt to play drums and a box. And when he returned, he managed a club called Le Grand Duc, where he had hired another black American to work with him, a poet named Langston Hughes, who would end up working as a busboy and a dishwasher. Uh, so for those of you who are local uh, to Washington, D.C., you may be familiar with an excellent local restaurant change called Busboys and Poets, named in honor of Langston Hughes' resume. Le Grand Duke was owned by a biracial American blues singer whose birth name was Ada Beatrice Queen Victoria Lewis Virginia Smith. Uh, but she went by Bricktop because she had a, a full head of, of bright red hair. Eugene would go on. He married a French woman uh, from a well-off family named Marcel. He had two daughters, Josephine and Lolita. Marcel would leave for reasons that have been lost to history, and Bullard became a single father. In 1928, he bought Le Grand Duc from Bricktop, and he saw his club frequented by the likes of Josephine Baker and Louis Armstrong. He opened another club, the Escargill, after Lafayette Escargill, the squadron of pilots that he fought with in World War I, and he opened an athletic club. So here, patrons could box, work out, take a steam bath, get a massage. He was so successful in Mamatra that Ernest Hemingway based a character in The Sun Also Rises off of him. Arthur Wilson, you might know him as Sam from Casablanca. Uh, Arthur Wilson was part of the house band at his nightclub. Charlie Chaplin was a frequent visitor. Gloria Swanson, Fatty Arbuckle, the Prince of Wales. Staff would come in and have to move things around because Fred and Adele Astaire would come in to dance. Uh, Picasso would stop by. Josephine Baker would continue to visit. Uh, she even actually babysit Josephine and Lolita, Eugene's daughters, on occasion. Uh, Cole Porter came by. F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda were frequent guests. But those good times wouldn't always roll. In 1933, Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. In France, the Deuxième Bureau recruited him to spy on the German patrons who were still coming into his club. Um, because in between being a badass boxer, a fighter pilot, a nightclub owner, he had also learned German. So he worked alongside this spy, a woman named Cleopatra Terrier, who went by Kitty. Uh, her father was murdered by the Germans in the disputed Alsace border region between France and Germany, and so she, she you know, bared this hatred towards Germans. So she would come to the table of the German patrons, and while she flirted with them and was able kind of to elicit information from them, uh, he would serve the tables because, you know, they didn't expect this black man from America to be fluent in German. Things would get hard for a nightclub owner with the rationing and the austerity measures. He tried. He offered a free meal of leftover goods from markets, kind of threw all of the the left market leftovers into a stew. He offered glasses of wine and a cigarette to those who continued to come to the club. But as Nazis came close to Paris, he brought his daughters home from their convent school and he closed the club. He would ask Kitty to take care of the girls. He grabbed his uniform and he headed back for the front lines. He found his old unit had been destroyed and Paris, it was overrun, so he couldn't come back to Paris. So he headed to Orléans on foot passing refugees and dodging bombs. 
He joined the 51st, which was conveniently commanded by his old lieutenant. Uh, and he once again, he was in charge of a machine gun crew against the Germans, just like in World War I. In this battle, a shell that killed 11 men, it threw Eugene 40 feet and cracked a vertebrae. So he used his rifle as a crutch and he made his way to the nearest military hospital. They gave him a can of sardines, some bandages, and some painkillers, and told him to escape south to neutral Spain. From Spain, he returned to America, 30 years after he first left. When he returned, he was basically back at the beginning. He didn't have the same fame and fortune here in the U.S. as he had had in France. So he worked as a security guard, a French perfume salesman. He worked for his friend Louis Armstrong as an interpreter. And he, I mean, he tried to regain ownership of his Parisian clubs, but they had been destroyed in the war. He was able to buy an apartment in Harlem, New York City, with settlement he got from the French government for those destroyed clubs. But he was also able to find Kitty, and she had kept her word. She kept her, his daughters safe throughout the war and they would come and join him in New York. Nine years after returning to America, he attended a concert by Paul Robeson in Peekskill, New York. It was a benefit concert for the Civil Rights Congress. But because Robeson was considered a communist sympathizer, the event was protested by members of veterans of the foreign affairs and American Legion chapters, among others. After the concert, Bullard was attacked by a mob. It was caught on video, and there are photographs of him being beaten by police officers, but no one was ever prosecuted. So this man, who was a war hero in France, just forgotten here in the United States, was beaten in a protest by a group of men of which he would have been a member if they just knew who he was and welcomed him. Throughout the 1950s, he led a quiet life. His daughters were married, he lived alone, and in his apartment there were framed photos of his famous friends, and on display were his 14 French war medals. In 1954, he was invited to Paris, where he was chosen as one of three men to rekindle the everlasting flame at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at the Arc de Triomphe. A few years later, General Charles de Gaulle called him a veritable héros français, a true French hero when he was made a chevalier, or a knight, of the Légion d'honneur. Two incredible recognitions in France, but back here in America, he continued to go unrecognized. His family was scattered around the country, his brother had been lynched in Georgia, and Bullard was working as an elevator operator at Rockefeller Plaza. He was wearing his medal on his work uniform when Dave Garraway, host of The Tonight Show, asked him about it. Bullard told him the story, which sounds a little unbelievable. It actually took more than a week to verify. But Garraway invited him as a guest on The Tonight Show in December of 1959, where he wore his elevator operator uniform. In 1960, General Charles de Gaulle came to New York during a visit with Eisenhower. Throughout the city, he was greeted with cheers, the singing of the La Marseille. He spoke at City Hall, the Waldorf Astoria. Uh, he spoke to 5,000 French New Yorkers at the 7th Regiment Armory, and Bullard had been invited to that speech. Exceptionally good and friendly reception. Good luck to you all in the war, and after the war in the peace. Good luck to you soldiers. Good luck to you all, men 
and women working for the democracy, for the liberty, for the victory. Good luck to you. Long life to New York and to American people. After de Gaulle spoke, he left the stage and he was walking amongst the crowd, heading towards a familiar face. In a sea of thousands, he headed straight to this lone black man, his chest full of medals. And as de Gaulle got closer, Bullard stood at attention and saluted. De Gaulle returned the salute, shook his hand, and then pulled him into a hug. All our country is in your debt, de Gaulle said. And Bullard responded through tears. Merci, mon général. Merci beaucoup. On October 12, 1961, days after his 66th birthday, Eugene Bullard died of stomach cancer. His last words were to a woman who was writing his memoirs. Don't fret, honey. It's easy. August 23, 1994, 77 years to the day of the exact date he was rejected from the American military he was posthumously commissioned as a second lieutenant in the American Air Force. Eugene Bullard, known as the Black Sparrow, after the nickname of his fighting unit, is buried in the French War section of Flushing Cemetery, not far from his friend Louis Armstrong. I leave you with his own words about his first time on a mission during World War I as the first black American fighter pilot. In three minutes or less, the order was given. Parte meaning go. The chokes were pulled away and so we did and fast. I sincerely believe that there has never been a pilot aviator who did not have a funny feeling on his first combat patrol and who wasn't really scared the first time he faced the enemy in the air or who was flying in formation to meet the enemy. I am not ashamed to admit these facts about myself. Why should I be? I am not an angel nor am I a hero. Anyhow, I was determined to do all that was in my power to make good, as I knew that the eyes of the world were watching me, as the first Negro military pilot in the world. I felt the same way Lindbergh felt when he was the first to fly from New York to Paris, France. I had to do or die, and I didn't want to die. a year of doing this podcast and we could not do it without the support of our patrons if you want to help support us and get all the perks of early access special episodes and our eternal gratitude you can become a patron at patreon.com slash tour guide tell all if you have an idea for something you would like to hashtag pitch to the pod send us an email at tour guide tell all at gmail or find us on social media at Tour Guide Tell All on Facebook and Instagram, and Tour Guide Tell on Twitter. The Rebecca's will be back next week for our first episode of March Women's History Month. But we also have a special challenge going on. We want to get up to 50 patrons on our Patreon account. And if we do, we will run a series about first ladies. Very much requested on Twitter. And certain levels of patrons will have access to a poll. So you get to choose which first lady we tell you all about. Tour Guide Tell All is a podcast for history nerds brought to you by the guides of Free Tours by Foot, Washington, D.C. We are Becca Graw, Rebecca Fackner, Dan King, and me, Candon Arsenyega. 
and we'll see you next week.